0: It was 1995. I'd been appointed to my very first church to be a pastor in Perth in Scotland, a little northern Scottish town. It was called Trinity Church, and one weekend I knew I was in trouble. And my father delighted in reminding me about this this week, and then said he'd be watching this morning so he could laugh at me, so... Those of you that pay attention to something like the church calendar with no kind of dates that stand out as big highlights, there's Advent leading up to Christmas and we have Christmas when we celebrate the incarnation, the birth of Jesus. And then we move towards Good Friday and Easter, dates when we can think about Jesus' sacrificial death and his victory over sin in the grave. When we think about Pentecost, the outpouring of the Holy Spirit last Sunday. And today in the church calendar is actually called Trinity Sunday. You can feel my anxiety rising. Trinity Church, Trinity Sunday, what am I going to do? You can also see why my father was laughing greatly at me. Trinity Sunday is a difficult day for young preachers, especially brand new ones who feel they're going to have to try to explain the concept of God as being triune to everybody in the congregation. It is an even more difficult day for congregations listening to young pastors trying to talk about such weighty things when they have no idea what they're doing. I'll try harder today, Dad. I'll. <laughs> but let's start with a very easy question. Who is this unexpected God? Who is the unexpected God? Gandhi once wrote and said that all the great religions of this world are fundamentally equal. And he would illustrate it with a story like this. One may drink out of the same great rivers with others, but one not need use the same cup. In other words, he's saying the soul, the heart of all religions are essentially the same, they're one. It's just encased in a multitude of forms or philosophies. And his views shared by many people, I think at least in Western societies, the belief that different religions don't so much contradict each other as they just complement each other. It's all kind of about the same spiritual experience. We have different perspectives, but mostly about the same universal reality and different paths, but leading to the same truth. In our culture, we would call opinions like that pluralism. And the idea is that we don't want to beat up on each other because we've seen and heard the stories of religious conflicts over millennia. It's never been a pretty thing. Nobody wants that. And pluralism, in a sense, is saying, surely there's something that can bind us and hold us together. We don't have to fight and argue about things like this. And generally speaking, that unifying principle is found in something that we would call God or the divine or the sacred or Mother Earth or something going on, the universe. But when we identify something as God, we're still stuck with the question who is this God? Which God? You could take in the Old Testament the prophet Isaiah, for instance, in chapter 6. In verse 3, there's a remarkable little phrase we should pay attention to. Isaiah writes this and he said, And one called to another, he's talking about an incident in the temple in Jerusalem, and said, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. The whole earth is full of his glory. The whole earth. That's actually an exclusive claim. And it's something that's significant to Christian faith because it's right at the heart of our faith. It's at the heart of our view of who God actually is. The belief that the God identified in our Bible is the one, only, truly, universal, worldwide, everything God. There is no other. And when we jump forward in the story till we arrive in the New Testament at the stories of Jesus, John chapter 3 for example, we see this God being referenced and identified as Father, Son and Spirit. John 3 verse 6, what is born of the flesh is flesh and what is born of the Spirit is Spirit. Or verse 16, a verse that many of us would know by heart, for God so loved the world that he gave his only Son so that everyone who believes in him may not perish but have eternal life. Look at the words. You need to be born of the Spirit to enter God's kingdom. You need to believe in the Son who was sent by the Father to receive eternal life. And when we come to the Apostle Paul who wrote much of our New Testament, in Romans chapter 8, you see the same names popping up again. He writes this. It is that very Spirit, bearing witness with our spirit, that we are children of God. And if children then heirs, heirs of God and joint heirs with Christ. If we, in fact suffer with him so that we may also be glorified with him it all fits together in this foundational christian faith what you're seeing is these people talking about and referring to the fact that god is three in one one being who exists in three persons father son and holy spirit he's not three gods that would be polytheism and christian faith is staunchly monotheistic just like its jewish origins one god and it's not God sort of slipping into three different disguises or putting on three different costumes, modes, or ways of doing things. He's not like a like St. Patrick you've got with a shamrock or a clover leaf trying to explain things. He's not ice and water and steam. Rather, he's eternally this three-one God. There's actually a very funny YouTube video about all these analogies that people try to explain God with. I posted it on our FEC online group if you want to look at it, or you can Google it up. If you're bored with me, you can do that now. Just keep the volume low. But it's called St. Patrick's Bad Analogies. It's very, very funny. But there's a real mystery here. We've gone way beyond calculus and astrophysics or string theory here. We're brushing up against ultimately reality that we're finding it very hard to talk about a three-one God, Father, Son, and Spirit. All three who permeate each other so completely that one is always with the other two. What on earth? The great 4th century, one of the earliest theologians of the Christian church, lived in Turkey, a guy called Gregory from a town of Nazianzus. And he says this, As soon as I think of the one, I'm illuminated by the splendor of the three. And no sooner do I distinguish them than I'm carried back to the one. There's so an odd Greek word that explains this. I used this with you a few months ago, the, the word trying to figure out, thinking about God. And the word is perichoresis. I'm not really big into explaining Greek words to you because I'm not that good at it. But the word peri, we get, it kind of means around. We use it in periscope in a submarine because you can look around. That's all it means peripatetic teachers. They travel around and fill in in schools, that type of thing. The other word, chooresis, is where you get choreography from for a dance. And so the word together is kind of like dancing around, like a square dance or something like that. That's what it means. And this word is used in the early church pastors and theologians as they try to explain the inner life of God, a life that is characterized by love, It's like when you love somebody, your life begins to orbit around them as you love them and want to know more about them and understand them and serve them and be gracious and kind towards them. That's what's going on here. There's this sense of a divine dance that continues around in this three-one God. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit moving around each other, centering on one another, entering into each other. Nobody demanding that somebody serves me each voluntarily loving and delighting in the other and adoring them that creates this dance of joy and grace and peace. And so the leaders of the early church, they used this word perichoresis, a divine dance that would capture the individuality of God as Father, Son and Spirit and yet embrace their unity as being one. It's a profound mystery that's heard we wrap our heads around. God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit, all bound up with each other so that you can't have one without the others. God is not apart from the ways in which he is, Father, Son, and Spirit, giving and receiving. I know it's perplexing. Yeah, I can see it in your glazed over eyes already. How long is he going to go on about this? I get it. It stretches our mental circuits. It makes it difficult for us to conceive. But this astonishing reality is found as filled with profound implications. That's what I want you to really see this morning. Implications about who God is, about us, even about other faiths. You see, let's start here. The Trinity shows us that the essence of God is love. It's a statement you read in the Bible, God is love. Surely that should be enough, since it's probably the most important thing we can read, God is love. Why don't we stick with that? God is love. That's all we need to know. But what does love mean? Those of you that know me well know I love chocolate. One of my favorite times of year is Christmas because all the old ladies in church give me giant Toblerone bars for which I am exceptionally grateful. They usually last all the way through to the Lent fast when I stop eating it. I love eating chocolate, but is that what God is love means? Or we say we made love, is that what loving God means? Or I love my pet, is that what loving God means? What does it say when God is love? Sometimes we love people. And we mean even something more difficult than that. What we mean is a selfish sort of possessing, holding on to somebody else, love that becomes destructive, our love that is self indulgent sentimentality, our love can be merely wishing somebody well. Love can be all sorts of things, and the way we use it in our language it can mean absolutely nothing at all. So God's love only can mean something if we can actually explain it. And the answer, I think, to explaining it is to be looking at the story, the story of God's love and action. It's how you can tell if somebody loves you. Go and look at the story, recount your history with them. And the story of God's love and action shows who he is. It tells the story of God's love, how he created the world because of his love and out of his love, and how he continues to love this world and everything in it, including us, that he has created. The story tells us, of how God continues to love us. Even when we reject his love and when we spoil his world with evil and selfishness, he continues to love us and has done everything he can to come and find us and rescue us from ourselves and the disaster that we so often are making of everything we touch. The story in the Old Testament is the story of God choosing one family, Abraham's family, and later his descendants, the nation of Israel, to bless a whole nation and then to bless an entire world as he sought to bring people bring people home to himself it's a story that comes to a climax in the story of Jesus who became one of us who lived his life with us and showed us who God is because he is God it's the story of his death taking our place it's the story of his resurrection destroying the powers of sin and death and hell once and forever it's a story continues as Jesus pours out the Holy Spirit upon us his loving presence to always be with us for all the time it's the story of God's love that we are embraced in and part of. And the story tells us who God is. And then we discover what it means to say, God is love. It's a self-giving love. He's not sitting up in heaven wishing you a good day. Remember to put on good SPF today. The sun is out, have a great life. That's not what he's doing. He gives himself to us in Jesus' sacrificial life and death. He gives himself to us when he pours the Holy Spirit upon us, people who aren't worthy of anything. And yet he pours his life into ours. God is love means that God is for us and with us and in us. He gives himself to us. And we see God's love in action. We're not just seeing the God, the Father, caring for us like a parent with children. We're seeing God, the Son, who loves us so much that he came alongside us as Jesus, our human brother, one of us, living with us, dying for us. We see God, the Holy Spirit, permeating our very being, loving us, if you like, from the inside. God, our Father, caring for us, nurturing us, watching over us, directing us. God, the Son, standing in loving solidarity with us in our world, giving himself completely. To us, God the Spirit who plums the depths of our hearts that we can barely understand ourselves, so that we can share God's love with one another. And it's only because God is Father, Son, and Holy Spirit that God can love us the way He does, that God can be caring and self sacrificial in that way. When we say God is love, we do need to tell the story of God, but we also need to use those words, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. It's how we say that God is love. But there's one more step in this definition, I think, that's probably the hardest one for us to make, the biggest jump. Because if God is love, it means he's love in his very being, quite apart from us. Before we even existed, before God ever created the world, God was love in his own self. He didn't start loving once he made something and found some people to love. God's love for us is the overflowing of who he has been and is from all eternity. He always was love. You see, love is relational. It's interactive, it's interpersonal. It takes at least two, if not more, people to love. It's something that one person has for another. A solitary being cannot love, which is actually one of the more significant differences between Christianity and Islam. Because God is love. When scripture says God is love, this inner life of God himself, it is then the primary way that he relates to us. Before time and space and matter ever existed, God called into being things that were not. Because he needed something? Because he was lonely? No. He has no hunger need that needs to be filled his creation is the overflowing of the joy the overflowing of the divine dance that he's inviting us into because he wants to celebrate with us and love us it's kind of like a wedding when people get married they invite all their friends and then the parents want to invite lots of people and then we bicker about how many people are coming but essentially we're trying to bring everybody we can afford why? because we want to share the joy of love with them and God longs to share the joy of his own love his own life with each one of us and so this idea of talking of the 3-1 God, a triune God, it's why Christianity gives love the primary focus because of who God is. But because God is triune, 3-1, and we're created in his image, that brings a whole lot of other consequences and issues that we need to think about. Genesis 1, the creation story, verse 27. God created humans in his image. In the image of God, he created them, male and female, he created them. Created in God's image, and who is God? He's the triune God, the three-one God, the God who is love. So to be human is certainly to be created for community, to be together. Since being created in God's image means that we're created for community. Then when we're tempted to move away from others, tempted to crawl back into the cave of our own heart and stay by ourselves to be solitary, that is a step away from what it means to be truly human. And I don't mean that we all need alone time, I get that. Everybody needs time to recharge their batteries, just stay away from me for a while, I'll be a better person if you do. We understand that, I get that. But this choice to say, I want nothing to do with anybody, is actually a choice to be less than truly human. And sometimes we need to think about that. Even in a day like today, when we're thinking about serving and volunteering and helping others, the choice to say, this has nothing to do with me, do it yourself, is actually a step away from what it means to be an image bearer of God. It is a step away from who God has created you to be. It is a step backwards from what it means to be truly human. For some of us, the temptation, I think, plays out differently, though. It's we turn others into a means to our own ends. We interact with people, but simply to advance our agenda. We use them. And that too is a step away from what it means to be human. You see, when we open our hearts and lives toward Jesus and receive the gift of the Holy Spirit, one of the things the Holy Spirit does as he fills our lives is he begins to provoke and to empower us to live according to our true nature, to be who God created us to be. And when we open ourselves to God like that, we discover that we begin to cross over some boundaries that we've never thought about before. There's the boundary between us and God, in a sense, Jesus' words in John chapter 3, Jesus answers a question, says, Very truly I tell you, no one can enter the kingdom of God without being born of water and the Spirit. Or Paul in Romans chapter 8 would say, For all who are led by the Spirit are children of God. You didn't receive a spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, but you received a spirit of adoption. And when we cry, Abba, Father, it is that same Spirit, that very Spirit bearing witness with our spirit that we are the children of God. In both these passages, we see that the Spirit of God is opening us up to all of God. And he leads us into this close and personal relationship with God. We cross a boundary that we actually relate to God in this way. A boundary crossed, but there's another one. Another boundary the Holy Spirit helps us to cross over. And that is the boundary between us and God, and between us and other people. The Spirit actually allows us to begin to have relationships that we might have thought were very difficult Are impossible and as we do we discover what God is doing working in our own lives this triune God teaches us to love others a love that serves your interests not mine a love that says I need to pay attention to you I need to listen to you I need to focus my attention on you and what you need and want not what I need This triune God is reminding me that love focuses on the other. This dance that orbits around somebody else, their needs, their desires, that is love. And when I can learn to make your interests my interests, when I can learn to make your desires my desires, when I can learn to make your heartache my heartache, that I can cry with you, then that love leads me out of myself and towards you. It's the kind of love we see in God. And it's the kind of love that God is pouring into our hearts. It becomes the end of deception and manipulation. Why do I need to deceive you and try to be more than I am? Why do I need to manipulate you if all I'm out there called to do is to love you? I don't need to use you. I don't need to hide from you. I can be honest with you. And so in reality, when sometimes in our pain or our fear of self-disclosure, our vulnerability means that we just pull back and we hide we're really living against the very grain of the universe. It doesn't work. It doesn't really protect us. Nor does it really make us happy either when we choose to live in a way that is different than God intended. There's something that we learn about ourselves and being human as we discover this 3-1 God. But I want to get back to where I started with you with Gandhi and the thought of pluralism. What would the Trinity, in a sense, teach us about other religions? It certainly shows us that God values difference. I mean, you look around our universe, you can see how much God values diversity and difference. Creation is filled with different species, all sorts of beautiful things, different personalities, different geographies. Go look at trees in the parking lot. Not even two of them are identical. God values difference. And ironically, this is one of the big challenges, I think, with the idea of religious pluralism. It discards the unique and distinctive elements of each faith community like what they might say about who God could possibly be. The Bible is not presenting to us some vague generic vision of God who's some impersonal force floating around in the universe. It's telling us about this very personal God who's inviting us into the dance of his own life. And so we learn to say something slightly differently. The unexpected God is a very different God, a triune God. To say that Christian faith is the same as Islam or Hinduism or Buddhism... That's not true. And it's not actually what Christian faith is about. And it's the problem with popular approaches to pluralism because it's not honest. And rather than discussing the similarities and difference between faith communities, we make parodies or caricatures of them. Where does that leave us? Well, if we're created in the image of God, who's essentially love, that has implications for how we treat each other. Our goal when it comes to talking with people of other faiths It's to be hold firmly to our own and honest convictions. There's nothing wrong with that. This is what I believe. But it's to have kind and honest and respectful conversations with others. It's a both and. You see, recognizing differences is not the same as starting a fight. Let me say that again because there are all sorts of circumstances in our world right now. We need to hear this. Recognizing differences is not the same as starting a fight. Actually, recognizing differences is a way to take other people seriously. When we consider people of other faiths or other political persuasions, there are mistakes that it is very easy to make. On the one hand, if all we see are differences, we begin to become exclusive and we push people away. We shy away from them. And on the other hand, if we look at everybody, a Hindu or a Muslim or whatever, and only see what we have in common, we begin to distort reality because there are differences too. The problem with much of our ideas about religious pluralism is that there are both undeniable similarities and undeniable differences. And it's only when we look and acknowledge honestly those things that we begin to honor one another properly. We begin to honor them and we begin to honor ourselves. And that's one way, I think, that the triune God helps us to look at and see people from different backgrounds than ourselves. There was a pastor when I was a kid for a long time in Oxford in England. His name was Michael Green. And he said that no faith, no religion that substantially stayed around for a long time could ever have done so if it didn't have something to say, if it didn't contain things that were true. And his point was that, as he saw it, Other religions are a preparation for the gospel, the good news of Jesus, who comes not so much to destroy things as to fulfill them. That's what's going on. A convert from a different faith towards Jesus doesn't necessarily feel that they've lost their entire background or their heritage, but they've discovered what their faith pointed towards, but they never could fully realize before. And he wrote this in his book on evangelism. He says this, It's certainly the attitude I found among my friends who converted to Jesus from Hinduism, Islam, or Buddhism. They're profoundly grateful for what they learned in their own cultures, but are thrilled to discover the fulfillment of that, a God who came in the person of Jesus of Nazareth, down to rescue us and make us all that we could possibly be, as he gave his life for us and was raised to fresh life again. So let me ask you this, what's the difference between a puzzle and a mystery? Austin Farrar was a colleague of C.S. Lewis, remember Narnia Stories, *Lion, the Witch in the Wardrobe? He was his colleague at Oxford University. And he used this distinction between mystery and puzzles quite often, which worked well for him because his wife was actually a crime fiction author. Which reminded me, Jill and I discovered in the past few years, we actually went to school with a guy who's now become a fairly famous crime author and won a number of awards. His name's Adrian McKinty. Many of his stories are set in a series of a detective called Jack Duffy who lived in the same town we grew up in, and it's Carrick Fergus in Northern Ireland. What's quite comical about it is you begin to recognize street names and places. The detective lives next door to a girl I once dated, apparently. My dad's in one of these stories. It's like, the thing is full of all sorts. It's quite entertaining to watch all this stuff. But Austin Farrar, his wife's a mystery writer, he began to realize that detective novels are not mysteries. They're puzzles. Once you have enough information, there's nothing to stop you solving the puzzle and figuring out who did it. If you can piece it all together and you've got all the information, a good detective story could allow you to figure out who the murderer is with cool clinical logic. A problem, a puzzle is a problem that you can solve if you've got enough information. But not every problem is a puzzle. Some are mysteries that lie beyond the ability of the human mind to grasp. There are some problems that are not puzzles but mysteries that lie beyond the ability of the human mind to grasp. And what stops us? Why can't we solve them? He insisted it's not lack of information. It's something more foundational. Our minds essentially are just not large enough to cope with the mystery. We just can't do it. There's no slick, there's no easy presentation I can give to you. There are glimpses of possible solutions, but it always seems slightly out of reach. Puzzles lead to logical answers. Mysteries force us to push language to the limits. A 3-1 God attempting to describe something that's just too big for us to take in. And the starting point, I think, to sensible thoughts about who God is, especially in himself as a 3-1 God, is to realize our minds are not big enough to hold the concept. We can't. It would be like trying to pack the Rockies into a suitcase to take on vacation with you, to fill your cup with Niagara Falls and take all the water with you. You can't do it. How can the little word God do justice to the magnificent reality that it points towards? You can't reduce God to words any more than you can capture sunbeams in a jar and take them home with you. Or to be more straightforward about it, we cannot fully comprehend God. We just can't. Human reason is not large enough of capable enough of grasping God in the end I think we need to pay God the very ultimate compliment of saying you tell us who you are you tell us what you're like you approach us because we can't do this and having said all that I come to my Bible reading for this morning one single verse the very last verse of 2nd Corinthians chapter 13 the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ the love of God and the communion of the Holy Spirit be with all of you. That's an easy verse to remember. I'd encourage you, figure it out today. It'll take you two minutes to learn. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, the love of God and the communion of the Holy Spirit be with all of you. This God who's hidden in mystery, he reveals himself to us. And the verse contains, I believe in a sense, the ultimate expression of this triune God. The grace of our Lord Jesus, who though he was rich yet for your sakes became poor, that through his poverty you might become rich. The love of God who made us for himself, who did not spare his own son, but delivered him up for us all, the very heart of the gospel story. The communion of the Holy Spirit through whom and in whom we can know God personally, through whom and in whom we participate in the communion of who God is, this divine dance. We are united to him as his people. Through Christ and the Spirit, God has communicated himself to us in such a wonderful way that we can have community with him in his inner life as father, son, and spirit. Look at the words again, grace, kindness, compassion, this great exchange of Jesus taking all of what we have, which is a mess, the Bible will call it sin, and giving us all that he has, his love and grace and forgiveness. Jesus is obedient, where we are disobedient, where we are impure, he's pure, where we falter, he is faithful to the very end. Jesus takes our burdens and gives us His rest. Love. God made us for himself. He wants us. There is room in his heart for you. He loves you. Communion, the very bond of love that God wants to wrap each one of us. Here in the big room or online, he wants to wrap us in his love and join in this divine dance. So to the question, who is the unexpected God? He is the triune God. The creator who is father, son, and spirit. And when you choose to allow him to enter your life, to be born in the sense all over again, everything begins to change. Listen again to Paul's words in Romans 8 that I read earlier. For all who are led by the Spirit of God are children of God. For you didn't receive a spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, but you received a spirit of adoption. And when we cry, Abba, Father, it is that very spirit bearing witness with us that we are the children of God. Have you accepted him into your life as your savior? You see, it's possible to hang out around church a whole long time and never really be a follower of Jesus to become a Christian. There are lots of good reasons to come to church. Many of us do it for social activity. There are a lot of great things here. For friendship, because people love to be friends and help one another. There's nothing wrong with that. Don't let me hear you think I'm upset about it. But sometimes we just do those things, but we never really allow our hearts to be changed by the power of God and allow Him to enter into who we truly are. You see, to surrender to God and to welcome Him into our lives we need to learn to step out of our self-centeredness. It means that we step out of our fear and into a trusting relationship with him. When Jesus died for us to break the curse over our lives, to break the power of evil over our lives, to give us life eternal, he was inviting each one of us into the dance of the Father, Son, and Spirit. He's inviting you to center your life, not on yourself and your own selfish agendas, that we easily slip into but to learn to centre our lives around him and around others the one who's moving towards you even right now where you're sitting where you're listening at home encircling you and saying come home and be with me and as you respond to him as we trust him as we repent in a sense move away from our self centeredness from our sins he begins to heal us heal the brokenness in our hearts and our lives, to heal the story of who we are, that we would know we are his beloved and chosen. Have you done that? Have you said yes to the invitation from this Holy One, the Holy God who loves you? Say yes and let him welcome you home.